Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now turn to page 1062. We'll be reading from Luke 24, from verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, You should have a little booklet for this week's series and if you open it at the last couple of pages, you'll see the texts we'll be referring to. Uh, So hopefully I've convinced you that it's a good idea to confess your sins and that the Lord's Prayer is a good way to um, assert the story to which we belong rather than the competing stories around our world. And today I'm coming to the stuffiest part of the Anglican service, namely saying the Creed. Although, I mean, we just sang the Hillsong version, which makes it cool, so it's all over, really. <laughs> Not much point me going any further, but yeah. Um, and, and by the way, that was a Ridley College connection that got that written. Anyone know that? How many people knew that? Yeah. Yep, John Dixon, a Ridley College lecturer, put out a, an anti-social media post and uh, uh, said, hey, Hillsong, help the Universal Church write a song about the creed. Yep, and they did, and it's so good. Now, um, when I was growing up, if you'd said to me, let's say the creed, I'd say my only creed is the Bible. Yeah? Or in those days, I was more of a Westie. I would have said the Boible. And uh, um, you can see some sympathy for that. And some of you may have arrived with that idea. And hopefully, we've kind of brought you around slightly. And I'll do my best today again. The truth is, the use of succinct statements to summarize belief is actually quite a biblical thing. We just heard it from Deuteronomy 6, um, the famous uh, Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, etc. If you read the rest of the chapter, it goes through the basics of uh, Israelite faith, their redemption and so on. Uh, the New Testament's no different. Uh, we heard Rhys, who uh, opened our service with that uh, confession from, uh, where was it, Rhys? 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. And then, of course, Jesus is Lord is most likely a very early uh, Christian confession. And I often wonder whether we should put in brackets, Jesus is the risen Lord. 
Is that going to ride, Mike? I think so. Anyway, so um, at some point, I'll think more about that. But today, we're thinking about why we say the creed. I've given you some reasons in the handout uh, to teach doctrine, to underscore our links with Christians of all ages across denominations, to worship God, to combat heresy, to affirm our identity as the people of God. One of the things I love about Ridley is the different groups, backgrounds that come together. And I'm a fan of all of the evangelical churches. I think each of them brings something important, as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. So the, the Caros and the Pentes bring something helpful and the Prezies and the Baptists. I think the Anglican Church in Australia, what, what's its contribution? Well, we could, positively, the contribution could be <laughs> keeping us orthodox. And I think... Uh, uh, with, uh, without creeds, we could easily slip into a kind of binitarian, modalistic, uh, docetic, sabalian, what are the other heresies about the Trinity? All of those things, whereas the creed anchors us very clearly in the notion of one God in three persons, and so important. So uh, what am I doing today? Uh, confession, I'm um, using a sermon I preached recently on the Ascension, uh, but I think the ascension is one of the neglected lines in the creed. Yep. And I confess that I have given it very, had given it very little thought until quite recently. And as evidence that it's a neglected line, as much as I love the Hillsong version, it ain't there. Nor is the resurrection body, but that's another sermon. So uh, the uh, saying the creed reminds us that... Uh, the ascension of the Lord Jesus is a central doctrine. Or is it? Uh, next thing I have in your handout is to ask, is the neglect deserved? Is the ascension of Jesus a MacGuffin in the Easter story, a plot token? Uh, and the true story, Easter has uh, various uh, scenes, if you like, and a MacGuffin, anyone know what a MacGuffin is? I'll buy you a coffee if you do. There we go, two coffees. Okay, that's all right. A MacGuffin, I think it had something to do with Alfred Hitchcock who uh, popularised it. It's, it's a kind of step in the plot that has no intrinsic importance or value. It's just getting you from one place to another so something else can happen. Yep. So in, in the story of Easter, we have the death, the resurrection, the ascension and the return, and the ascension's just the bit in between. If you were here yesterday, my... Uh, 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 last week's most interesting things that happened to me, the Gold Coast was a MacGuffin. It was really just to move me on to my relationship with Anthony. Yeah. So how many were here yesterday? Yeah. Well, the rest of you can ask later. <laughs> so uh, when we read the creed, there it is there. It's in the creed, isn't it? But it's just four words. He ascended into heaven. And then we kind of move on. So, uh, well, is, is it just a MacGuffin? Well, I'd like to say it's not, actually. The Ascension is really quite an important Christian doctrine and a very important scene in the Easter story, and in, which is our story. So, in, in, and, and backing up slightly, believe it or not, the Ascension is only narrated twice in the New Testament, and it's kind of just a hinge between Luke and Acts, seven verses total, out of some, I think there's about 8,000 verses in the New Testament. Sandra Malone here, you could give us that proportion off the top of his head, I'm sure. But uh, so is it just, is it so, how can it be important when it's only narrated so briefly in, in the story of, of Easter? 
Well, uh, interestingly, all five of the Christian sermons in Acts, the first sermons ever preached that I recorded for us, mention the ascension one way or another, uh, either explicitly or implicitly. John's Gospel six times talks of Jesus going to the Father and four times of him ascending to the Father. Paul in Colossians 3 tells us to think of Jesus seated at the right hand of God. 1 Timothy 3, as Reese reminded us, has uh, um, the uh, Jesus being taken up to glory as one of its key lines. The book of Hebrews bases much of its teaching about Jesus on the ascension. And as we'll see, the Old Testament actually uh, predicts, if you like, or at least prefigures the ascension. Rightly understood, the ascension reveals the true identity of Jesus and what he's doing between his first and second comings. And I think it's critical for our forgiveness and blessing from God. So uh, we could look at many texts to understand it. We're going to just stick with the ones in the handout and particularly Luke 24. And the bits I'm hoping to give some new light to, to kind of, you know, when you read something, uh, it's like going through the bush. If you're on a bushwalk, you kind of get caught on bits. I'm hoping there'll be several bits you'll get caught on. And those bits, just to give you a, a little heads up, are the fact that Jesus blesses them the fact that they worship him and the fact that they respond with great joy. Okay, so let's get down to it. So what do we learn from these four verses? I think two things stand out and they are these. The ascension of Jesus is about his installation as king and his installation as priest. So we'll do that in order, king then priest. So I think that Jesus in our passage, is worshipped as king and he blesses his disciples as priest. That, that's, that's where I'm getting that, yeah? And I think this is made explicit in a number of passages in the New Testament. So Hebrews 4.14a says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, see that? Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is a, uh, um, an important title for Jesus, and it means a number of things in different contexts. And what I'm saying here is it means that he's the king. So son of God as king is, uh, has a connection to the ascension. So from the ascension, we see Jesus as our ascended king. Now, reading the ascension in the New Testament, thinking about it, it's like reading Harry Potter volume four without having read the first three volumes. And that reading the New Testament on the Ascension, on anything actually, without reading the Old Testament, is really going to give you a, a pretty monochrome reading. You need the Old Testament, and it, the New Testament assumes you know the Old Testament. It alludes constantly to the Old Testament. This is the same here. So kings, to start with, kings in the Old Testament ascended. That's what kings did. So not up to heaven, but up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Uh, we see this in Psalm 2, also in your handout, where it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the king as God's son is made clear in verses 7 and 8. I will pro proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then notice in verse 8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. 
And the king as God's son, of course, goes back to 2 Samuel 7, the, uh, uh, the Davidic covenant where um, God promises that David will have one of his descendants on the throne. He will treat him as his son. The promise here is of a universal reign of God's appointed king. And, of course, the Old Testament kings all failed to live up to that expectation. He had a few high points, uh, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, but none of them ruled to the end of the earth, and really most of them were pretty wretched. In the New Testament, Jesus, the unique Son of God, fulfills this psalm in his resurrection, and I put to you, in his ascent. He is God's appointed king who rules the world. We see this also in Daniel 7, uh, also in your handout, where it says in verses 13 and 14, a famous passage that's picked up several places in the New Testament. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language, notice this, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So the ascent is the climax of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, which is what he talked about all the time. In his life and ministry, he announced it and described it. At his ascension, he's installed as king forever. And we await the day when his sovereign rule will be clearly over all the earth. And Jesus' kingship, his lordship, is uh, characterised by justice, justice, righteousness, peace, love, truth, mercy, which is what we want from our leaders. So whatever you make of ScoMo or Albo, uh, they're going to fail. They're all going to fall short of the ideal ruler, which is depicted for us so beautifully in the Old Testament, the, uh, the ideal king. Jesus is that king. Now, he's that king, a Davidic king, but with a twist. He's not just a human appointed by God. He's the unique son of God, God himself, worthy of worship. And we see that in Luke 24, don't we? The disciples worship him, and then notice what it says at the end. They praise God. Fascinating, isn't it? So worshipping Jesus and then praising God. Larry Hurtado kind of dined out on the worship of Jesus for decades, Uh, if you're into New Testament Christology, and I think he had a point. So one of the ways in which the early church recognised that Jesus was God was by their worshipping him, because only God receives worship in the Bible. Remember Revelation 22, the apostle John meets an angel and falls down and worships the angel, and uh, uh, what does the angel say? Nope, not going to happen. Up you get. And uh, Jesus doesn't do that. He receives the worship of his disciples. The disciples worship the ascended King Jesus, and so should we. So if we await the second coming of the full rule of Jesus, what's the ascended Jesus doing in the meantime is worth asking. Well, Luke twenty-two sixty-eight is that one in your handout? I think so. says it. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Peter Adam told me when he teaches on the ascension, he asked people, what is Jesus doing in between his uh, resurrection and 
his return? And the answer is he's having a rest. He's not. He's on the throne ruling because kings ruled from a seated position. And uh, the Apostles' Creed actually makes something of this because it says he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. So at his ascension, Jesus enters his full rule, having conquered sin and death and the spiritual forces of darkness. And the ascension then proclaims the permanent centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ as king. But there's more. We also, from the ascension, see Jesus as our ascended priest. And the Old Testament backstory again is very critical. Not only did kings ascend in the Old Testament, so did priests. In Exodus 24, Moses kind of acts as a priest, interceding for God's people. Where does he do it? On a mountain. The high priest on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 enters the Holy of Holies to meet with God. And in some places, that's kind of seen as an ascension. David in Psalm 24, although a king, performs priestly functions and he says, who may ascend into the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's the priestly language. I think there's a clue in Luke 24 that the ascended Jesus is our priest. He blesses his disciples, which is one of the key functions in the Old Testament of a priest. So what did priests do? Uh, They had at least four functions. They provided worshippers with forgiveness, access to God, intercession, and blessing. And you guessed it, Jesus, our ascended priest, does all these four things for us. Jesus, our ascended priest, secures our forgiveness with God, Hebrews 8. We have a high priest who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So the work of Christ in securing our forgiveness requires both his sacrifice, making atonement, and also his priesthood, offering that sacrifice in the heavenly temple. Um, It's a bit like um, Nat, Toby and I went to uh, uh, surprise Nat's sister in Sydney for her 50th birthday over Easter, straight after the morning service on Friday, back Saturday night. It was a blast. So uh, we just uh, took with us. For some reason, the plane happened and it was on time that day. Anyway, so we just took carry-on luggage. We had uh, a bunch of things, obviously some clothes and other things we're taking. And one of the gifts was some chocolatel chocolate. Anyone know chocolatel? Wow. Anyway, it's it's my favourite chocolate store in Melbourne, which is saying something, of course, because Melbourne does chocolate better than anywhere. Anyway, uh, we couldn't fit it in. So there's two steps in providing a gift, purchase and delivery. Now, we found another purpose for it. (laughs) But my point's this. It's the same with our forgiveness. It's purchased at the cross, but it's delivered at the ascension with our ascended priest, the Lord Jesus. The cross pays for the gift. The ascension delivers it. Without the ascension, we don't receive the gift of forgiveness and redemption. And then this dual work means that Jesus, our ascended priest, guarantees our access to God. Hebrews 4, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because we have a high priest. And then you'll also get him interceding in Hebrews 4, 
and the ultimate goal is blessing, also in Hebrews 4. So you get all four functions of the priest connected with Jesus' ascending. Now, blessing, just a quick thought or two on blessing, I think because it's in our passage. So blessing is a, it's an odd word, isn't it? And, and we use it for all sorts of things. You know, I feel blessed looking at the sunset, that kind of thing. And, and poor old ScoMo got in big trouble for suggesting he was blessed by not having disabled kids. So um, no political comments here. And uh, it is a biblical word. And I, I don't tend to use it, to be honest. Uh, but, I, but I think it, it, it's, we should. We should use that word. I think one of the helpful texts about blessing is the famous Aaronic blessing in number six that you all know. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Yep. And I think what we learn there is, sure, the blessing of God's care, his concern for our lives, peace in our lives, all of that is blessing, but it flows from God. So the real blessing is God himself having his face shine upon you, turning his face towards you. And that's what the ascended priest Jesus secures for us. Namely, bringing us sinful human beings into right relation with the God of mercy and grace. So far from a non-event, a mere hinge in the narratives of Luke's two volumes, a MacGuffin, a mere plot token, the ascension enthrones Jesus forever as king and as our great high priest. It's kind of a Cinderella doctrine. It's sitting in the ashes, but, but when you really know what's going on, you'll see that uh, it's the darling of the ball. Went a bit far with that one, maybe. <laughs> okay, now back to our trip to surprise Carol, okay? Now, this is typical. We, we, uh, Nat has one sister. We're very close. Our families is four cousins. I get on well with Dave. It, it, it's, it's just a, well, such a blessing. Anyway, we went up there for the 50th. And uh, as you imagine, there were tears of joy. And Carol, it's all on camera if you're on a video if you want to watch. And Carol was genuinely surprised how the cousins kept it a secret. I cannot understand, but they did. Anyway, so... We see them for holidays most years and a few other times during the year. And one cousin comes down each year. So it's, a, it's, it's just a lovely thing. But always when we leave, there's sadness. Yep. Nat cries every time. Yep. Jesus leaves the disciples in Luke 24 and they're joyful. Interesting, isn't it? Does it say great joy? I haven't got it in front of me. Yeah, remarkable. And why is that? The ascension is a moment of great joy for the disciples and for us when we realise that the ascended Christ is crowned forever as God's king and installed forever as our great high priest. Okay, to finish off, this bit anyway, we're going to say the, the Apostles' Creed. And I'm hoping he ascended into heaven will come with new meaning for you. Together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. 
he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.